Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Oh Brother, What Are We Watching? Two brothers discussing pop culture with a geeky bent, maybe slightly less geeky today, and we'll find out in a moment. I'm joined by my co-host as ever, Chris. How are you doing, Chris? I'm very well, Steve. How are you? I am very well. And the reason why we're not going to be too geeky this week is we're actually going to discuss a film classic, or at least I think it's a classic. I don't know what you think yet, Chris, but we'll find out in a minute. We're going to talk about the 1949 Right, this is the oldest film, or far anything. and away the oldest film we've watched. And you know what? I I feel so proud that we have because we live in an age where if you put on Netflix or Amazon Prime, you'll be lucky if you can get a film before nineteen seventy on there. Oh yeah. So that we have actually managed to sit down. I've watched it before, but you for the first time watching uh, a film from nineteen forty nine. I I feel quite proud uh, in oh, a yeah. small way. Uh, and we're going to discuss the Third Man, uh, based on a Graham Greene novel. Directed by Carol Reed, starring Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, and widely regarded as one of the greatest British films of all time, if not the greatest. So if you if you've seen the description on the podcast app, and you're just unsure about whether to 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 listen to this one because you don't know about it, stick with us because we're going to talk about just I think a a cracking film. But before I get to your thoughts on it, Chris, I wanted to kind of ruminate on how i got here because i chose this film because it was my birthday coming up this was one of my favorite films and and how did it become one of my favorite films and it really chris it all started for me back when we were at school i was in sixth form yeah yeah i was in sixth form you were about five years behind me when you're in sixth form you get these kind of elective kind of lessons and i took a film noir one back with a shared history teacher of ours, Mr. Shannon. Oh, I hope he's listening. I, I doubt it. I really <laughs> if, doubt it. If you are, Greg, you changed our lives. In so many ways. <laughs> Apart from the fact that you look like, he looks like the head of sixth form from the Inbetweeners. And, and acts, acts, like, acts like the head of sixth form from the Inbetweeners. <laughs> oh, good. In jokes. Right. Mm. So I took an elective class on, on film noir and I loved films at the time and I kind of, I guess, fancied myself as a bit of a filmo, but didn't really know the ins and outs of it. And I was about to go off to university. So I took this class where Mr. Shannon, basically it was an excuse for him to, to shove on a video and not have to talk for an hour is how I approached it. But he gave us some good information and he kind of, Chris, opened my eyes to, to films like The Killing, which was one of Stanley Kubrick's first films, which is about a bank robbery. And he also showed us uh, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. Hmm. And that kind of set off in me this kind of uh, desire to watch more of these. Uh, in some cases, they're pulpy, but in other cases, they're um, they're they're just very classic uh, films um, about the darker side of life, about the darker side of things like racketeering. And, and you really can't get anything darker than the literal ruins of World War II Europe. And that's where we start off with the third man set in vienna filmed in the ruins themselves this gorgeous city you know stripped bare by allies by by the soviets by the the nazi bombs as well as the people who are profiteering uh mm. from this post-war uh post-war situation it is a it's a gorgeous film i think and uh it stuck with me and every time i watch it i pick up on something else new and and Chris, I just I'm dying to know uh, what did you think of this film? Well, Steve, I was a big fan. I very much enjoyed watching this film, 
like you said, I felt, I felt good. I felt in a way you probably shouldn't feel accomplished for simply watching a film, but you know, I, I did feel accomplished because I was like you say, you know, I didn't just stick in the latest comedy or the latest, you know, Marvel superhero film. I watched a classic black and white movie. It has, uh, on on at least one occasion, been voted the best British film of all time. It has, and and it's nice to take a look back and 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 see why. And yeah, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I was expecting. I think the things things I'm always nervous about with older films are that the film's going to be too long. Uh, uh, you know that the pace is going to be so sufficiently different that it's going to maybe lose my attention, or that it will just come across as kind of a bit cheap or a bit schlocky in some cases but no it was uh, it was a class film very beautiful and i must admit you know i was a little bit trying to because this is for your birthday you know i'm trying to put myself in in steve's shoes right and 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 be the film buff and and maybe even be the 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 guy that's in film class trying to understand the cinematography or whatever and there was quite a few shots in there where i was like Hot damn, how did they do that? Because <laughs> it'd be easy. Everything's easy today. We're, we're so, in many ways, blessed with, with this incredible technology we have at our disposal that you can watch something like, like this or like Citizen Kane and be like, whatever. But not being sensible of the fact that, no, they, they, they didn't have CG. They didn't have necessarily green screen or whatever to be able, they didn't have a computer that could just make this shot happen. They had to create this shot. How did they do it? Uh, jumping ahead, hugely, there's 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 a bit specifically in the middle of the film where um we're sort of looking towards a window and the, it just sort of closes in on this plant or, or or something, and then it kind of goes through that and then takes us through to the street below and continues yeah. the shot on the street below. I have no idea how they made that happen because I'm pretty sure this this was a set. You know, I'm pretty sure <laughs> it wasn't actually in a building that was above the street. So. Yeah, I I was really impressed by some of that stuff. Uh, really holds up, as well. Just tight film was about an hour and forty, mm. uh, so definitely not too long. Very good pace, keeps you going, keeps you interested, keeps you with it, gives you a mystery, and 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 you 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 know you want to solve it, and you know obviously a suitable amount of twists and turns, and uh, just some absolutely cracking uh, acting and on on screen chemistry as well. Yeah, I, I, it's a great uh, starting point is to talk about the the way they shot this film because it is a you know it's, it's a black and white film and you know if you do watch it either online or through Blu-ray, it's a bit surprising at first because it comes out in four three right it's not widescreen at all, uh, but as you say Chris it, over the the hundred minutes and it's not long at all it's like just just over a hundred minutes you you get to see a film that is just is absolutely gorgeous and it, it's only shot in two colors right some of those great shots you mentioned so the one where it pushes through it's just old school filmmaking right these people don't have cg they don't have all the technology that we have at our fingertips today so so much of the beauty of this film comes from 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 things you, you as as film goers we don't often think about so it's things like lighting it's things like the character of the the, the way the, the the scene is set up so that the shadows pull across it in that great kind of film noir mm, way, right? I Someone's that, coming yeah. around the corner, but you can see these massive shadows <laughs> that are two or three stories high and everybody's kind of, oh, what's going on? Who's coming around the corner? And it, it gets you tense as well, thinking what's going to happen. And 
it's nice seeing something like that that I think of as an archetype of, I suppose, film noir. You know, the the big shadow, the guy in the coat running off down the alleyway. It's nice kind of seeing where it originates from and, you know, the, the sort of actually being used in context and being used to really good effect. Absolutely uh, amazingly shot. So the, the film is set, for those of you who haven't watched the film, the film is set in post-war Vienna which is a beautiful city but is absolutely war-torn at the stage so you've got beautiful old-fashioned architecture next to ruins and they actually film in the ruins at point at points you have orson wells you know running away from the military police down these ruins uh, sometimes into the actual mm. sewers of the city and it becomes a character of its own vienna it's just you, you spend as much time you know looking around at not only the shadows but that's the gorgeous architecture and it just becomes a um, a wonderful wonderful piece of atmosphere mm. is created by this city. You know, it's it's a dark place, Vienna, in the post war. There's there's people who are out there trying to survive, uh, and we meet a, a bunch of them along the way. But of course, Harry Lime, who's their, not the main character, which is one of the great things about the film, is that Orson Welles is advertised as mm. one of the main actors, but you don't actually see him for a great proportion of the film. The lengths that they will go to to survive, to to make money. Um, there's a great line um, Harry Lime says towards the end of, um, "What was if I gave you twenty thousand pounds for every dot down there that didn't exist, and it would be tax free, which is the only way to make money nowadays." It's such a great little line, and <laughs> it speaks to not only his, his like kind of single mindedness, um, uh, but but also just the you know what's happened yeah. to Harry since he's come over here. For me, something that I really loved was the fact that to to lend the, to to lend that kind of feeling of you know yes there are a lot of different people you know it explains right at the start uh, like you say you know it's occupied by different forces uh, it doesn't shy away from having someone speak in german or or maybe a little bit of french or whatever and yes. and, and so that happens a lot and that just lends to the sort of the sound of uh, the sound of the film it 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 makes us feel like no we are in vienna we are you know we are in somewhere where there are multiple different nationalities trying to uh live together and work together in this very difficult kind of time and yeah you know i feel like if this was a modern film yeah. everyone would have an accent but everyone would speak english and it's almost this assumed um sort of shorthand and language of film these days it's like if someone has an accent they're probably talking in their own language or whatever but we don't want you, the audience, to have to suffer through that because you don't speak German. I'm just yeah. going to, you know, hand wave that, just assume that they said that in German or, or whatever. You know, whereas actually, you know, you've got quite a few yeah. scenes, uh, particularly with the porter, who's who's a German speaker, yeah. and he's trying to speak English. And then every now and again, he just goes into German because he can't say it in English. And it's like, well, that's what would actually happen. <laughs> that is the conversation you would actually have because people... People don't, you know, people who learn a bit of English don't all of a sudden gain fluency in it and can't always express themselves in it. But you understand enough, and and sometimes yeah. it's like, well, that there's there's an old woman who quite often just gabbles in kind of excitable German, yeah, and we don't need to know what she's saying. We know the context of what she's saying. We understand probably what she's she's trying to say, you know. But we, we don't need to know the exact details of it. So she says it in German and, and we understand. And it gives this layer of kind of realism to the film. And, and it lends the it lends the background a bit of, yeah, a bit of credibility, I suppose, in one way 
but yeah, it gives it gives it just some depth as well. We are with this character of Holly Martins, who is you could say naive. Right at the start of the film, he's very naive. Right, uh, Harry's his best mate. He's going to do right by him. He writes these kind of awful pulp novels, <laughs> um, usually <laughs> set in the American West. He's he's not he's probably yeah. as good a writer as I am. Right. And he's thrown into Austria without a friend. He doesn't know anyone. And as you said, Chris, you know, there's people around him speaking German. And there's no subtitles. They know, you know, they don't just suddenly burst out into English. So that we know what's going on. We're kind of put into the same position as the lead character. Which makes it a lot easier for us to get into. And also makes yeah. us feel like Holly. You know, a stranger in a strange land. where We're the fish out of water trying to get around like what happened my friend's dead i'm stuck here now in europe what's going on it's 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 a really great way to start the film because like i say it it takes you on this journey with him and i think it's a really good example of a film doing what all films should do which is um show me don't tell me you know don't don't have this character just tell everyone oh i'm in love with this woman show me why he feels that show me how he feels that and and likewise we we go along with holly martins on this journey where he starts off like you say really naive and he is going to set out to to prove his friend's uh innocence and and anyone that's trying to pin stuff on him post-mortem is some cynical jackass basically mm. and yet so we everything he learns we learn at the same time there's very little kind of dramatic irony where where the audience knows something he doesn't so we're very much in his view from through his eyes and then yeah you start to you know you start to get this mystery element uh which really intrigues you and you're like i've got to know more people are saying contradictory things something fishy definitely happened here i kind of don't want to ruin it really but obviously we get hit with we get hit with some fairly bad information regarding harry and how he's been operating uh, that's kind of I suppose, incontrovertible. Much as we, the audience, have kind of had the rug pulled from underneath us, so too is Holly. It's like, maybe mm. maybe he wasn't such a good guy. Actually, now I think about it, he was a bit of a jerk. And yeah, yeah you know, it's it, it takes us, and so it's it's got all these elements to it. You know, in, in many ways, it's quite lighthearted, especially near the start. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bit of comedy in there. Uh, I laughed quite a few times, uh, which again for for a film from the forties, I wasn't expecting it to be able to get me to laugh. Um, yeah. And then yeah, you know the film starts to take these more serious turns. It has that great thing um, uh, as well, where it deals with some very heavy stuff, but it's from an era where films weren't designed to gross you out. Films weren't designed to make you feel hugely uncomfortable. But we get the idea, um, you know, so there's a bit where we're in a sort of, I suppose, a children's hospital with some very sick, very, you know, unfortunate mm. kids. Uh, and it's a bit of a turning point for, for our character, or I suppose a bit of a sort of point of no return for him, where it's like, I can't, I can't be blind to this. I've seen it now. Yeah. But we, as the audience, don't see it. It's one of the first times where really he's dealing with something that we aren't kind of exactly with him on. but your imagination fills in the gaps and your imagination probably does far more than film could have done at that time. Whereas again, if it was a modern film, it would have been like, look at this. It's gross. It's disgusting. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, you know, you know, so it was from a time when cinema lit, lit some of your imagination do the work and, and 
Also, is it too early to talk about the music? Because I feel we need to talk about the music. Chris, at this point, I think we're kind of in a freeform jazz. <laughs> we are, so this is the rebirth of Oh Brother. What are we watching? And it's a freeform jazz odyssey. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's easy to get carried away talking about this film because it's very. There's, there's a lot to get into, and it's very enjoyable. Absolutely, you know, it's it's only an hour forty, but there is so much to talk about between performances between cinema photography between the themes of the film and as you say chris the, the music because the music is actually very famous and even if you don't know this film you may actually know the music yeah the zither music by as anton Karras. that sounds about right yeah tell me what you thought about the music chris in one respect is probably what dates the movie the most in so much as again you know you wouldn't get a film soundtrack like that these days you know it is entirely um yeah, zither music. <laughs> I was reading a bit about it before I started watching, and in my head I was thinking zither, I was thinking kind of an Indian instrument, kind of twangly sort of thing. Not quite what I thought it was, uh, and I was quite relieved by that because I hate the instrument that I was thinking of, whatever it may be. It's a little bit like the sort of music they play that Zorba, the, the Greek music kind of stuff, is played on, but in a very different style. And what's quite interesting about the music for me it's just pretty upbeat. It's pretty jolly. It, it's pretty overwhelming at some points. Like, it's very loud, uh, just in terms of the mix, I suppose. Yeah. What I found the most interesting is, as I say, it starts off very lighthearted. There's very little tension. The stakes feel relatively low in the beginning. And as the film goes on, the stakes very quickly ramp up. The film becomes a lot more tense. And the way this tension is almost always felt, uh, uh, or at least for me, was just by the lack of music. You know, when it's silent and something's happening and people are having an exchange, um, mm -hmm. because this this music's kind of omnipresent, is, you know, when you stop hearing the funny, happy-go-lucky, tinkly-tinkly music, it's like, oh, like, shit's getting real. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it silence, almost... very, you know, used to very good effect. It almost uh, mirrors kind of Holly's mood, doesn't it? That he mm. uh, arrives in Europe, he's got this kind of upbeat attitude that his mate, his great mate who's known since school, is going to help him out of a bind. He's in a really down place, but he's a, he's a happy-go-lucky, naive kind of chap. And uh, he's going to come over to Europe. And, you know, something that we maybe don't remember, World War Two happened, and World War One as well, obviously, but happened here in Europe. In America, it happened away from America. Mm. So these Americans are coming over. They don't, you know, they've, they've never seen a city like Vienna, which has been bombed half to destruction. They've, you know, they don't know about things like racketeering, or at least not to this kind of level um, that happens in this film, where, as you, you pointed out, Chris, where kids are unfortunate victims of what Harry mm -hmm. does. Um, and the music kind of mirrors that, you know, it starts off jangly and kind of happy-go-lucky and hey, I'm in Europe. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And as you said, at certain key, at certain key stages, it, it just falls away completely. And you're just left with that kind of stark silence. And it mirrors Holly's own mood where he's kind of has, he has to question everything he's believed about his friend and his motivations. Like, And he goes back and forth with it, even to the end, Chris. Yeah. Like he goes, you know, you know, he's my friend, but he's done these terrible things. But how could you do this to this girl? You know, this this girl Schmidt, who he saves with these fake papers, uh -huh. but is quite willing to see get taken away by the Soviets. Back and forth, back and forth. 
um, it really does re- reflect well on that. And as you say, it's it's so iconic when you hear it for the first time. I should probably drop in at this point into the podcast a little snippet so people can listen to it. Do I tell you what? Do that. That's a great idea. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> I think the 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 actor who plays Holly, Holly Martins does a, a fantastic job of yeah you know he he portrays all these different kind of moods that are often kind of reflected by the music and you know at times he feels very happy go lucky uh you know kind of like oh who's who's this uh who's this fine Czechoslovakian chick you know maybe I'll get to know her <laughs> and uh, and then at other times he's a little bit more kind of uh, somber and. And yeah, you know, like like you say, we're going back and forth with him. What you know? What's this guy really like? Or what was, what was Harry Lyme's deal? You know, was he a good yeah. guy? Was he a bad guy? Are they pinning stuff on him because he's dead and it's easy, or was he actually kind of a monster doing some horrible things for selfish reasons? You know, we're we're really with him when his world kind of gets turned upside down when he kind of answers that question and has a really strong idea of what's been going on. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, in, in terms of that, Steve, the, the acting, talk, talk to me, film buff that you are, about the acting of the actors <laughs> in this film. Well, well, the first thing to note is that, that so the, the main character is Holly Martins, played by, uh, played by Joseph Cotton, I think, and Orson Welles plays Harry Lyme, and the two of them were together, Chris, in Citizen Kane, which I'm not sure how much of the kind of classic Orson Welles films you've seen, but that's certainly, that's the easiest one for every film or pseudo film buff to see. What's the yeah. greatest film of all time? Oh, Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane, of course. The Kane Rosebud, from Citizen Rosebud. Kane. Exactly, the Kane from Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Joseph Cotton was in that film with him as well. So they have a very good um, relationship together. Although most of this film is carried by by Cotton, who have yeah. already said just has to carry a, a wide range of emotions. And what I especially love about his performance, but it's, it's all of them really, Yeah, is they have that very 1940s way of talking. Mm-hmm. which sometimes you don't get in, you don't really get in films nowadays when you talk naturally you often overlap with people right you you don't necessarily talk and then stop and then wait for the other person and stop mm-hmm. which is how it's portrayed in films naturalistic talking is you kind of try to butt in or you just talk over the other person or yeah. you stop and you see a lot of that in this film and that's one of the great hallmarks i think of, of things like this or, or howard hawks films or whatever is is that kind of more realistic dialogue and 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 he with with Schmidt and some of the more German characters, the 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 military police as well, yeah. um, Calloway, constantly kind of talking rapidly and quickly. And sometimes you have to kind of keep up. I've got unfortunately my DVD didn't have subtitles. I would really like subtitles <laughs> to get some of the great lines because it is such a well written film. Mm-hmm. But Joseph Cotton is is fantastic in this as the the fisher of water who is trying desperately to find out what happened to his best friend. And, you know, you, you, you made another great point earlier, Chris, which was about filmmaking when it, it, it didn't show you everything or it didn't need to show you everything. And he slowly but surely falls in love with this woman, Schmidt. Mm-hmm. 
but there's no you know there's no like longing eyes there's no physical contact there's no like sex scenes or anything mm-hmm. like that it's all just based on their their interplay and and the feelings between them and by the end of it martins realizes why why lime fell in love with a woman like this and equally of course schmidt has has fallen for harry completely and is given a free ticket of vienna and doesn't take it you know like an idiot yeah i mean we, we should actually uh, move on and talk about the man himself orson wells when he finally turns up so if you've never seen many orson wells films chris mm-hmm. then was this your first time watching orson wells act so I, I tell you what this was it was literally for me the first time i've seen orson wells on screen i had a look at his imdb because his name is obviously famous as famous could be you know one of the most famous actors of all time and then i looked it up and i was like nope i don't think i've seen a single thing he did the only thing i've seen um are you, i mean this might be a gap you could you, you could fill in steve can you name the animated film in which, to which he lends his voice which is far far from the grandeur <laughs> of the third man which is the only experience i have of orson welles transformers the movie transformers the movie yes <laughs> he plays omicron um <laughs> is, is my only experience of this incredibly fine actor yeah i mean i was, I was really excited because i'm watching the film and i'm kind of waiting to see because obviously orson welles is on the front cover mm-hmm. um he is obviously billed as one of the top actors and i'm a significant way into the film and i haven't seen him yet and i keep wondering what capacity am I going to see him in? And again, I don't want to ruin it for people, so I won't say exactly how he he sort of comes to be and how you come to see him. You know, right away I was like, oh wow, so this is Orson Welles, and I am now seeing him in his prime. You know, because obviously I, I kind of know him as this sort of old bearded guy with an incredible voice, um, and here he is, very young, very handsome, very spry. Uh, and I was like, oh, this this is quite exciting, you know, seeing this guy so notorious. And the there's there's a scene that he shares with our um with our main character, Holly Martins, mm-hmm. um, where we, we see the two of them have this interplay. It takes place on a Ferris wheel. Yes. And I was just like literally sitting there, like my my jaw has dropped by the end of the scene. And and the wife, uh, she was in the room. She was doing a bit of work uh, while I was watching. And I was just like, that was incredible. <laughs> I, said, I couldn't tell you why. I couldn't tell you what it is. But Orson Welles acted the pants off of that. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. He's so, so charismatic. So, such an energy to him. And, and everything he portrays is like, I, I know exactly what both the characters are thinking. It's like I'm reading the novel. Because I know right. exactly both of their thought processes just from their faces. You know I love face acting. It's just from their faces. The the slight reactions. Uh, there's, there's one point where um, things seem to be turning a little bit sour. And uh, one of them reacts by taking up, uh, uh, should I say, a bit more of a position of safety physically. Mm-hmm. And the other instantly kind of goes like, oh. Um, and... And there's just this this acknowledgement on both of their faces that's like we're no longer talking hypothetically, and things <laughs> things are escalating quickly. Let's take a breather. Let's take a step back, and just the whole thing is so good. Um, yeah, there's a line uh, right at the end of that scene that actually wasn't in the script, 
but essentially it's Orson Welles is talking about uh is this, is this the is this the line about the cuckoo clock exactly the line about the cuckoo clock so he's talking about Rome and he's can, like, can you let can you let me say it because I've got it I want to please say it. please could you deliver the line <laughs> you know what the fellow said in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias they had warfare terror murder and bloodshed but they produced Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance in Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's that, it's that cheerful way at the end. Yeah. He's just like, so long, Holly. I've just, I've just unleashed on you this idea that war is good and profiteering and racketeering is fine. And kids may die as long as I've... <laughs> as long as I and society live on. Yeah, he is... Exactly. He's this, he's this incredible character who's just showing his, like... It's not like he's oblivious to what's going on, but he just seems entirely callous and unfeeling, uh, to, you know, to, to these points. You know, he, he makes another point where he's up in the sky and he's he's looking down on people from the Ferris wheel. And he's like, they're dots. They're dots to you. What would it matter to you if one of those dots stopped moving? <laughs> and, and you know, it's, yeah. it's very much, again, it's letting us in on his thought process. And, and it's making us, again, as the viewers, like you said, beg the question, what happened to this guy? to make him so jaded what happened to this guy to kind of make him think like this and we don't know and we don't see that the film just lets us wonder and you know again it's another example of how i just love when a film just lets you the intelligent viewer it gives you the information you need you can think about the other stuff um you know it's not this information overload where you need to know you know Oh, we need to know his backstory. We need a 20-minute flashback that explains exactly what his motivations are. He needs to tell us exactly what his motivations are and exactly why he's doing things. It's it's the same with the romance plot. You know, the most effective romance plots throughout history are ones, for me, where no one's commenting on how they're feeling. We're just seeing how they're feeling. Um, and I think the closest anyone comes to talking about it is when I think Holly's talking to Anna and he just sort of says, like, I wouldn't stand a chance, would I? Like this is, there's there's, that, yeah. there's nothing I could do, and there's something on the lines of I put my head between my legs and make funny faces at you, and then he he kind of has a beat and he's like I wouldn't stand a chance, do I? Yeah. He, he does say to her, he's like I love you, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and she's just the whole time she's reacting, she's very sad, she's kind of crying. There's a lot of complex emotions happening there. You know, it's not it's not a simple one beat of oh no, but I love someone else or. Uh, you know, you're just not my type. There's, there's, there's so many different things kind of going through her head, and we don't need to be told. We just, we just kind of get to see how, how it happens, how it unfolds, and, and you know, to that point, even right through to the ending, there is a lot of ang- ambiguity about what will happen next, um, uh, and what has happened in the sort of the, the final beats of the film. Yeah, and and she has uh, so the character Schmidt, who is the, the the actress who um, Harry Lane saves, and then. Uh, kind of leaves it hanging out to dry she has a great line chris which i wrote down which um is when when holly is trying to understand what has happened to harry or uh, what he was like as a kid and she says to him something on the lines of he didn't grow up the world grew up around him Mm. and it's just another little great element of of the, the film doesn't the film doesn't tell you outright you know what happened to harry or or whatever but you you do get the sense that these people who you know either um lived and survived together in war-torn europe and are now just trying to survive by any means necessary kind of get each other Mm -hmm. 
Schmidt knows what Harry's done in some ways. It's not that she's blind to it, but she's more accepting of it mm-hmm. because she's been there before, even though he's he's willing to let her be taken by the Soviets. But it, again, to your point, it kind of just lets you it leaves you to think about it as does as does the ending which we won't spoil here yeah it just lets you think well what's going to happen next for these characters there is a great chase sequence towards the end which takes uh takes place almost completely underground mm-hmm. through the, the massive sewer system of uh vienna and i've never seen sewers that look so beautiful yeah <laughs> <laughs> now this there's a lot going for Vienna, and that's definitely one of the things. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, and that's a very classic kind of thing. You know, the, the, the old film noir chase scene and, you know, footfalls going off into the distance. And I'm just going to hide around the corner. But oh, I, I really felt so tense when I was watching it. And mm. I just honestly felt like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I really don't know what's <laughs> happening. I, I feel so... I, I feel so buzzed and energized by feeling like i can't remember the last time i watched a film where i wasn't 100 percent certain what was going to happen within the next 20 minutes or so because you know there are so many films now <laughs> that you can't help but you, you start to spot the patterns you see the formulas you, you you start to see you know the lines of code in the matrix you know what's coming yep. next you know if somebody's just said you know, oh, what's that? Oh, that's just my insurance document. Oh, Chekhov's gun. That's important. That's going to come up yeah. again. Um, yeah. You know, whereas here, I was like, I'm in the dark. This is from a different era. I'm sure watching this, people might have known what was going to come next or, or might have expected something. But I was just like, there's a chase scene. I don't know if the person chased is going to get caught. I don't know if they're going to get killed. I don't know if they're going to make it out alive, dead, if they're going to have a last minute surrender. There's There's a million different ways this could play out, and I don't know what they are. So every tiny bit, every time someone runs past them, you know, every time, you know, it seems like they're about to run into a dead end. You know, my heart is in my mouth. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> is this it? Is this the end? Oh, it was so well done. And the way that scene does end is, for me, pretty much perfect. It is pretty I, much I, perfect. I, I, couldn't have, I, I couldn't think of a better way of doing it. You've raised another great point, Chris. And it's again, it's another reason why this is like, Stephen Chris must recommend you yeah. must watch this. This, film. this is a must watch. <laughs> is is you just brought up the point about Chekhov's gun? Yeah. So the driving force behind this film is that Harry is dead, and his mate has turned up, and he may or may not be dead, and therefore Holly is going to go out there and and find out about it. It's a lot of films nowadays would go to pains to to solve the mystery. Remember when Sherlock, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, went dead. And it was all about, like, how did he survive? Or did he survive? And, uh-huh. and how did he do it? And the whole, like, first part of the next season was, like, how he faked his death. Uh-huh. It's never explained here. Other than there might have been a third man, which didn't happen. It was it was somebody else's fake body. It's it's immaterial. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, it's not the purpose of the film. The purpose of the film is not, did he fake his death or not? It's about so much more than that. And I was just reading today... Um, there's a great film critic for, I think it's Vulture, and his name is Matt Zoller Seitz, or Matt Zoller Seitz. And he was bemoaning exactly that, that a lot of films nowadays, it's, you know, scene one, there's exactly Chekhov's gun, and therefore it must be used. And therefore, mm-hmm. We get so wound up sometimes in A must be B, it must be C, yeah. that we sometimes think that, that films are really about much greater things. And Third Man is, for me, one of those. It is a much better film because it is an exploration of of man of character 
of of disillusionment of maybe growing up with someone and thinking he's someone different mm-hmm. than you you thought you thought he was the greatest person he was the friend who'd do anything for you and then you start to re-examine your memories when you're challenged and you realize that actually maybe he's a bit of a selfish a-hole yeah who was horrible to you a lot and you you recontextualize everything think you right. know that goes from being that was a childhood prank to actually that was a pattern of behavior um and what, what makes these films great and and you realize this more when you do what we're doing which is is, is sitting down and discussing them is they leave you room to discuss. I think the most fun we've had on this podcast is whenever we've been discussing a film that has left something to our interpretation or has has given the film at least has just given it room to breathe. You know, hmm. where where it hasn't explicitly told us everything that we need to know. So yeah, we can talk about it. We <laughs> we can say what did you think about his opinion on that or you know, what did you think that part meant? And even if there is an explicit meaning behind it, the fact that it hasn't been so telegraphed so here it is let's dumb it down for the audience because because we need to make sure everyone gets it um and and keeps eating their popcorn etc etc that yeah you know you really feel it when we sit down and talk about films um you know there's there's just so much more to say compare this to our our conversation you know two weeks ago where we're talking about the the marvel movies Mm. very enjoyable great summer blockbuster big action films (laughs) but there's not a lot to discuss beyond what you see. You know, I find if I ever discuss those films, I start to sound like uh, a six-year-old on a playground being like, and then there's this badass bit where Captain America like grabs a helicopter and he's like, but then this happens and bah. And what I'm describing is, I am describing for you what I have seen (laughs) because there is nothing else for me to talk about. Whereas here, you know, there's, there's not a huge amount of action. There's not a huge amount for me to say, oh, do you remember that cool bit where, where there's a guy and he's got a hat and there's a cat by his feet and you're like, whoa, who is that? But instead, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm saying, well, uh, you know, how do we divine Harry Lime's motives? Or are we meant to? <laughs> you know? Yes. Do, do we actually think deep down there was remorse there, he just wasn't showing it or he wasn't willing to show it? Uh, the fact that I could sit and discuss this film for hours uh, just on, on those basis is, is very, very interesting to me. Uh, I think that's why The Third Man stands the test of time, even though it's in, it's in black and white and 4-3 and there's no CGI and there's no mm-hmm. there's not really action. There's there's tension. Mm-hmm. The, there's, there's a bit of a thriller aspect to it. But it really is more kind of a depth into into, into a man's soul and into people's, people, what people are do, willing to do to stay alive. It's... It's one of my favourites, Chris, and it's utterly fascinating. And I, I could talk about it for for much longer, but we may even go over the same points again and again. Yeah, there there is one thing uh, that that I'd like to bring up before we sort of uh, close out on the third man. Go on. Uh, it's just a little thing that I I picked up on, and uh, I'm curious for your kind of take on it. Um, and it's the the sort of running theme of people getting other people's names wrong. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I was wondering, do you think that's just kind of a gag? That that's kind of a bit more of a sort of old school gag. So, for example, there's Major Calloway, who um, Holly continually refers to as Callahan. There's uh, Anna frequently calls Holly Harry, which is of course his best friend Harry's name, um, and they obviously have very very similar first names to begin with. Uh, and it's not until right at the end of the film, one of the last times she addresses him, she finally calls him his right name, 
and then dicks on him for it basically and says holly but what a stupid name <laughs> uh and there's the i i forget the name but there's the doctor yes whose name i think has one of those hard v sounds i uh, you know it's like wilhelm or, or something like that and and holly keeps referring to it as more of like a soft w sound it's um dr vinkle and he says vinkle that's it yeah things like that is that a gag is, is that just like a running you know joke do you think or, or or do you think there's another reason for it do you know that's that's a that's a fascinating question i didn't really pick up on it again that's why this film is so good because i've seen it two or three times now and i never i never really picked up on that beyond the, the superficial um i you know what that's a great question chris i should I, I don't know the answer and i'm sure if i google it there'll be people out there with with theories mm-hmm. i guess one that comes to mind is just the this idea again about identity right yeah so who are you and who are your friends um and it just really kind of re-emphasizes that so as you said schmidt gets gets holly's name wrong mixes him up with harry and and kind of maybe it just alludes to the fact that maybe one could have been the other you know yeah, if but, it wasn't but for, for a wrong turn in life. in life or yeah exactly they both came from the same place in america if holly had went to europe instead of harry would would they have swapped places maybe things like that or maybe just to 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 the point about being a fish out of water and, and not really knowing you know who who everyone is and what it and what they are because yeah. um, what what i started fascinating to, actually. yeah what, what i kind of started to read into it as you know because i think there is layers to it and i think the one layer is simply it's a it's a joke it's 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 a kind of funny you know almost bordering on vaudevillian kind of it's it's harry holly no it's holly harry da what's my name what I kind of noticed is there's a significance to when, you know, to to when somebody starts using someone's real name. So, like I say, it's not until right at the end that that she that that Anna calls him Holly, and I feel like that's the point where she feels like I have the measure of you. I know exactly who you are, exactly what you're about. So now I now I address you by your real name. Similarly, uh, Holly and Major Calloway have a very adversarial relationship when they first meet, and it's actually quite clear from this, the first time he does it from, from that point on that he knows Major Calloway's name is Calloway. He's calling him Callahan to antagonize him to kind of get his goat because he knows he doesn't like it. Um, but as soon as he kind of comes to a bit of an understanding with him and starts to see, okay, this guy's not just dicking around. Like, I think he's actually right. All of a sudden it's Calloway from that point on. Um I imagine it's something fairly similar with uh, the doctor with Winkle Vinkle. Um, in fact, I think he says it quite pointedly. Uh, when, yeah, he deliberately again, mispronounces I, his name. Yeah, and you know, again, I think it's sort of a thing of like, you know, from that point on, it's like, no, I know who you are. I know exactly where you stand in this from this point on. Um, so that's kind of what I took on it. I don't know if uh, others would agree with me or not. I invite people to comment. It's it's fascinating, you know. It's it's one of these great aspects of. It's one of the things about film theory that I quite enjoyed at university, which was you'd be in a seminar after watching a film, and the teacher would say exactly as you said. Well, why do you think that is? Um, and you can then spend fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes talking about why you think, um, the writer put that in there. This, of course, was based on a Graham Greene novel, which he then adapted, and I believe Orson Welles added in um, some material, as you've kind of alluded to, Chris. And it, it's it's just another it's just another layer of appreciation that you can give to a film like this. You know, you can 
uh, go and watch some of the the modern blockbusters this uh, that are currently in our cinemas, or you can sit back and, and watch a film like this for for less, and you can arguably get much more from it. Um, to your point about mis- mispronouncing names, I mean, yeah. I didn't even think about that in the first two times I watched it. Now I want to watch it again and write down that every time because I had written down things like Vinkle and Winkle and yeah and Harry and Holly, but I didn't really pick up on it consciously. Uh, until you mentioned it so it's just another great it's another great layer it's just another another layer of the onion yeah to Um, to this complex uh study of humanity it's it's such a cracking film yeah i also wanted to uh make note obviously you've given us your your history with the film where you came across it and obviously i don't have a history with the film or any of the actors within it i have however read a bit of graham green's work uh, outside of this film um, I read a novel or possibly novella, I don't know what classes it is, which, that he wrote called The Quiet American. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's very interesting because I sort of came into this this film knowing he had written it, uh, kind of thinking like, ooh, that's interesting because that was a very odd book <laughs> when I read it. And it again, it was, it was kind of in a similar way where it, it left me thinking, I wish someone else that I knew had read this so I could discuss it with them. Was that bit a non sequitur or was that important? Or is the fact that it wasn't important kind of the point and stuff like that? It was a very short thing. It, it actually bear, bears uh, a lot of similarities to this film, though, in terms of it, it's it's one guy's perspective. We, we stick with him the whole time. Every character we experience through his eyes. And there is a lot of, oh, you're not what I thought you were. Or you know reevaluations you know sort of again but even even in a novel even in the, the written form uh you know graham green still does not at least to my memory explicitly tell us exactly what the character's thinking he still leaves a lot of that up to you. you you know he's just kind of reporting on what the character's seeing and maybe the immediate thoughts and feelings they're having but you know gives gives you a lot of latitude in what you can take from that <sighs> just a cracking film just a just a <laughs> cracking film isn't it, um, it is, and it actually is. i had alluded to before in the past chris there's two films that i could have made you watch here and this was one of them the other one is an also starring orson wells and i'm going to keep that keep that in your for, back pocket i'm going to keep that in my back pocket <laughs> but before i sign off chris have you got any ideas about what we're going to do next time uh, i do i do I didn't until about an hour ago when I'd actually forgotten. <laughs> I'd forgotten that I had to set you up something. So yeah, so it's it's summertime, Steve. As as we record this, uh, we're just going. And living in... is easy. Yeah, living is easy. We're going into August. Um, and so I want to talk to you next week about the film that essentially created the summer blockbuster. Okay. And is pro- was probably one of the first films on my mind when you introduced this whole concept to me that we were going to address the gaps in pop culture knowledge that that we each had. Oh my uh, goodness! So it's it's time after it's thirty-five time, years. After thirty-five am I years, gonna... you're going to wash yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Finally. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt like. I felt like this was an appropriate time for us to finally uh, to finally uh, take it on. Uh, we get to talk about Jaws next time. I'm not going to go into it too much now because there is a history with why I haven't watched it, but excellent. 
I look forward yeah. to it. Okay, that's all for this episode. We'll be back hopefully in two weeks' time. In the meantime, if you wish, you can keep in touch with us. You can follow us on Twitter at OBrotherPod. That's just the letter O, BrotherPod. You can like us at Facebook.com slash OBrotherPodcast. And finally, as ever, please subscribe and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Uh, until next time, I've been Steve, he's been Chris, and we'll see you next time. Bye.